0: Have your Bibles, I'd ask you to find Ecclesiastes chapter number five. And as you find that, um, a quote from Danny Aiken's commentary on this particular passage I thought was worth sharing verbatim as the main idea. He said, Instead of trying to find satisfaction in money and possessions, find it in Jesus and his gifts. Brace yourself. We're going to be talking about money and how money is meaningless without Jesus. Uh, it is really easy to think this will be one of those condemnatory messages, but rather than making anybody feel bad for the sake of feeling bad, the point is to point out the pitfalls and then to and then to get in an abiding relationship with Jesus so he can start to na- help you navigate where are the pitfalls with money. Um, so I pray that's what God does with this. Now, when I was Lost as a Ball in High Weeds, I came across a copy of a painting. I was actually in Germany, and it was just on display somewhere, and I wanted to know more about it. Found out the original was in the Louvre in Paris, and, and it just captured my attention. I don't even know if I pronounced the guy's name right. It was by a Flemish painter named Quentin uh, Matsis. And what got me immediately, now remember I told you guys, I wasn't walking with the Lord. What got me is I immediately understood in the painting that the woman had in her possession, uh, which would have been a pretty amazing thing in 1512, she had in her possession a book. I mean, every Bible was handwritten at that point, or every devotional book. And it's supposed to be one or the other. It has a sacred picture in it. And it's, it's supposed to be the picture of a sacred book, whether it's a devotional, some, some book written by some priest or something, or a handwritten copy of the Bible. That's what it's supposed to be. And you see she's flipping through the pages. But what is her eyes on? What are her eyes on? The money. Her husband, the money lender, is doing his business. And this is what I submit. I submit that if you have your eyes on the Bible, it will tell you how to handle your money. But if you have your eyes on money, it will cause you to twist the Bible. If you want any everyday evidence to this, just look at how pervasive the prosperity doctrine is amongst us. Many people, many people are so concentrated on wealth, their idea of success, money itself, that they approach the Bible by making every passage serve the purpose of personal riches. This is one of the coolest paintings and one of the saddest I've ever seen. It's insightful from the original, the artist. As a matter of fact, it was so insightful that it was, that it was mimicked in some other paintings. One, one painter even painted the whole painting inside of his painting. I didn't know that until I was doing a little research on Wikipedia. It was cool. He shows this whole painting is inside of a, a painting he did. Pretty cool. Why do I think it's so insightful? Because in, uh, th- if this painting was supposed to be happening in Antwerp, It could easily be happening in Roxborough. If our eyes are on money, we begin to twist the gospel. If our eyes are on the gospel, we begin to use money. And I believe it. The frank truth that we need to face before we even read the scripture tonight is that laziness is a sin that needs to be condemned. But so likewise is greed. And we live in a culture where both are pursued with equal passion. We live like a bunch of baby piglets in America, and we think the government is the mama sow, and she's supposed to make us fat and happy. Or we live with the bootstrap mentality that I'm going to go out and get mine. I tell you, in a culture where laziness and greed are constantly glorified we're going to struggle because it's all we know we know that this one or that one what God calls us to do is to labor in things that glorify him and to use what's in our hands to bring glory to him so we're called to not be greedy to not be lazy either one what the writer will be getting at today is very simple Money and possessions cannot give us the satisfaction we truly crave. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. There's, this is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Fathers, we open this word, open our understanding. That we may draw near to Jesus. That we may begin to navigate the pitfalls that... That love of money can cause. But God also that we will begin to navigate the victorious life that shows us that everything you put under our stewardship can be used for your glory. Everything can be a point of unashamed fellowship. And everything can be a point of broken fellowship. Lead us to discern the difference and to desire the better. In Jesus we pray, amen. Two points, but as you might imagine, some things inside of them. I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys. At 4 o'clock, I preached way too long, and I challenged them to come back and listen to the shorter version, but they didn't do it, so you guys are getting the blessing. You guys are just after the service, text everybody else who was here at 4 o'clock and say, guys, you really missed it. Andrew, thank you. You and Shannon are to be highly praised. Um, (laughs) Number one, pursuing satisfaction in money is meaningless. Pursuing satisfaction in money is meaningless. Now, let me give you several pieces of counsel from the writer of Ecclesiastes, from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. First, this, you'll never have enough money. Isn't that just simple? When is enough enough? You already know the answer. Here is the spiritual reality that we must wrestle with. Contentment is not natural. Now, let me... I'm talking about something very spiritual here. Let me see if I can unfold that a little bit. We are broken. The natural man is not naturally contented. In other words, there must be some sort of supernatural work coming in to help us find contentment. And if you can embrace this first reality, you will already be on the path of some sort of spiritual victory. In other words, it's not in you. It's not in your broken self, by your broken self, to find contentment for your broken self. You guys, know, you guys know I love to quote one of the greatest poems written in all time. High classical literature. Humpty Dumpty, sat on a wall. Help me now. Humpty Dumpty, had a great fall. Come on. All the king's horses and all the king's men. What? Couldn't put Humpty back together again. You guys know some great poetry. It was not within Humpty's power. It was not within mankind's power, strength. It was not within mankind's wisdom. Humpty Dumpty needed miracle, like the 80s pop song. All I need is a miracle. All I need is you. This is high theology, folks. It is not within broken man to fix broken man, to find contentedness. Being content takes supernatural power. I always think here of, of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where he says, my paraphrase, I know the things I ought to do and I don't do them. I know the things I ought not do them and I go do them. And he sees that not doing what he should do and doing what he ought not do is wrecking him. So he says, who will deliver me from this wretched man that I am? In other words, he's not even looking out going, you're my problem, you're my problem. He's saying, I'm my problem. I love that the next words in the passage are, but thanks be unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, there's hope for the Humpty Dumpties or for the Dumpy Humpies. either one. We need Jesus and we need him bad. Though generally and ultimately a biblical fool, the French philosopher Voltaire is not wrong about everything. Here's one of my favorite things Voltaire said. Don't think money does everything or you are going to end up doing everything for money. I want to give two quick illustrations, much quicker than the early service. Think about all the dumb things people do for money. How many of you guys are on social media? I'm not going to make you feel bad about it. Okay. Any of you guys seen those memes where they say, you know, the example I think of is like, would you slap your best friend for a million dollars? Anybody seen those? i I slap all my friends. You know, you know, I line y'all, y'all, most of my best friends in this church, I just line y'all up as you come here, welcome to church, welcome to church. Cha-ching. But it's sort of dumb because it's asking you to put a price point in how much you value people versus how much you value money. And I tell you, I've seen a bunch of them, I go, yeah, I would. But I'm just sitting there saying I value the money more than I do the friend, And I'll justify it. I'll catch myself feel guilty and go, well, if they was any kind of friend, they would understand a million dollars is worth a little pain. Yeah. Andrew asked me to slap him one time, and he told me to really slap him. I really slapped him, and did it hurt? Thank God he don't remember. <laughs> I slapped my friend for free. I know I slapped him for a million, right? But there's something wrong in that mental motivation, isn't it? There's something wrong there, I think. All like the ones Would you slap your ex for a million dollars. Oh, dun-dun-dun. Or how about a second sort of way of looking at this? What about all the people who go on these crazy shows for money? Like, uh, I-, I couldn't think of the title of this one, but somebody told me in the first service, Naked and Afraid. So you're going to go on a television show where you walk around in the bushes naked. While I was preaching, last service, Brett found it appropriate to text me a picture of a guy from Roxborough who went on that show. He was clothed. Thank you, Jesus. While I'm preaching, Brett's texting me. He could be texting me now. The phone's over there. Yeah, he probably was. Yeah. What are the things we do for money? And when's enough enough? And what are your boundaries? And how did you decide them? And You already know the answer. Enough's not enough. I don't care how many raises you get, you'll up your budget to spend whatever raises you get. Verse number 10, they just say it plainly. (laughs) He who loves money will not be satisfied, and the people of God ought to say amen. Secondly, you'll attract leeches. I love verse 11. I, I, I almost laugh every time I read it, whether aloud or silently. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, the most stuff you got, the most folks are at your table. And it's hilarious. The second part of it is hilarious. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He said, and what good does it do you? Except you sit around and watch people eat up your stuff. You could Google rags to riches and find all sorts of heartwarming stories. But if you want to find terrorizing stories, Google riches to rags. I want to give a couple of examples that sort of blow me away. And I'll go ahead and admit this first one. I am blatantly I blatantly was a big-time fan. Iron Mike Tyson. I love that guy, man. I love to see him fight. He come out like a a hungry bulldog. That was my man. I hate video games. If you know me, you know that. But they come out with this video game about beating Mike Tyson. I couldn't wait to find somebody who had it. I wanted to play it. It was called Punch Out or something. I don't remember. Don't correct me. I just don't know. But I wanted to play it. And I I, I was like, they got a video game with Mike Tyson, your boy got to play. I loved him. Mike Tyson, uh, you know, fairly young, had earned over $400 million. $400 million. But by 2003, he was $23 million in debt. At one point, he bought a $200 million bathtub. A few months ago, we got Clay Shipley to fix something in our bathroom. We paid him like $2. Sad to me. It's sad. Well, here's one that got me, and, and I want to belabor this for a moment because it just, it just it struck me. You know that thing where you go to an appointment and you wind up reading a magazine just because it's there? It's a type of magazine that you wouldn't normally gravitate towards? Well, I say that. I say I picked up four of his magazines. I don't know if I'd ever picked up a Forbes magazine before this point. If I did, it didn't stick out to me. But I'm thumbing through it, and I stop in the middle of an article because a sentence caught my eye. His wealth plummeted to 200 million. His wealth plummeted. If your wealth plummeted to 200 million, where was it? So I did the thing where I started backing up and reading it from the beginning of the article. Man's name is E.K. Batista. And since I read this article years and years ago, like 2013, I've been following this guy's story. Every once in a while, I'll just Google his name and find out what's going on now. Okay, let me see if I can illustrate why this catches me. We went to Cracker Barrel last night. After one visit for a family of four to Cracker Barrel, you could write an article about me. His wealth plummeted to a few dollars. So, so you know, that's the thing. Where did it come from? Okay, so I had 50. Now I have none. Right? So where were you at? If someone could even write a sentence that says his wealth plummeted to $200 million. Anybody want to take a guess where he was just for fun? Where was he? In 2012, he had $43 billion. Excuse me, $35 billion, $35 billion. In 2013, that's a year, his wealth had plummeted to $200 million. By January of 2014, Bautista reported that he had negative net worth. Huh? Huh? What happened? Right? Now, if you Google him today in 2018, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Apparently he was pretty corrupt. Where did he make his money? In energy. I guess his Energizer Bunny stopped bringing him symbols at some point. What's my point in this? I don't care how much wealth you have, There's no shortage of people that will help you eat it up. I would like to give a negative illustration of this. Now, some of you guys who don't know me will find this shocking and you might not like me very much afterward, but I got a DUI one time, and I was that guy who would always give anybody a ride anywhere. Well, when you get your license stripped away and you're attempting to go by the rules, find out real quick you ain't got many friends. That's what wealth will do a lot of times, and it tells you they weren't your friend. They were what? Friends of your, your stuff. That's sad. It's sad. It's hurtful. This is a trap. This, 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 the pursuit of money can create that sort of trap. Thirdly, look at verse 12. Verse 12 is also sort of funny. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the, mouth, but, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You, you won't sleep well. You won't. Now, funny story. I can get into REM sleep faster than anybody you know. If you've ever slept in the same room with me, like on a retreat or something, you'll find out. Your boy just falls out dead. I'd be like, I'm going to sleep. I'd do it. Uh, years and years ago, Karen and I got married. Uh, and it wasn't until we got married because, you know, we, we, we had never spent a night together until we got married. She's like, something wrong with you. You need to go to a doctor. I think you're dying in your sleep. You got the sleep apnea or something. I went to had the test run. They said the machines have to be broken. Nobody ever gets into the REM sleep as fast as you did. I went back, did another study at their expense. They're like, you're weird. Right? But what I usually tell people, they say, how do you go to sleep? I said, I work hard and i got a clean conscience. I say that in jest. Right? But that's actually, not the clean conscience part, they say, the guy who's actually working hard to get by, he doesn't go to bed because he's tired. Amen? But the (laughs) person, thank you, baby. The person, the person who who's got such an abundance that his gut is full, a lot of times he's troubled and can't sleep. That's something right there. You know, this isn't sleep, but let me show you something. I'm going to step right here because I like looking at these. Look at this. Four years. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was ugly day one. But ugly and woe out don't go good together. Okay. Look at this one. Really, I mean, man, economic collapse, natural disasters, wars. Eight years, just look at that man. I'm not picking on him. That's what pressure, that's what success will do to you. And this one right here, look how young and vibrant President Obama looked in 2009. I'll tell you, what we need is change. Eight years, my man changed, didn't he? What gets me is how gray he went and how, um, I don't know, just like his eyes. There's all sorts of success that will kill a person. You know something I... You know, I want my children, I want my children to be stable, but I often find myself, Lord, don't make them famous. I don't want their lives eaten up like that. America just kills well-known people. Money will do it too. Or maybe another way to think about this is what about the people who work hard, work hard, work hard, they want to do this, they want to get that, they want to build their, their property, their home, their stuff, they build it up to such a point that they got to put security systems on it so somebody else is watching it when they can't watch it. Where is that tipping point where you're worried to death about getting it and then you're worried to death about having it? And if you think I'm condemning that, somebody in here is likely somebody here has a security system. Carrie has a security system. I'm a, uh, even though I sleep deep, I sleep light. I'm her security system. <laughs> I'm not picking on him. I'm saying there's a trap here. And we do well to think about it. What What if the very pursuit of this stuff is just the very thing that's stealing our rest? You know the old saying. Money can't buy happiness, but I'd like to have enough to find out for myself. Except Solomon is saying, brothers and sisters, I've had enough. And it didn't work still wasn't satisfied. we do well to listen to his counsel. Also, in pursuing satisfaction, uh, you know, finding out money is meaningless, we see that you'll hurt yourself. Look at verse 13. I say, Tim, where do you get this stuff? <laughs> There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his herd. I see it in the Bible. I say, how did you come up with this? I read the verse. I got two words for you. If you don't believe this, I have two words. You ready? Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> Three wheeler. If you grew up in the '80s, things will kill you. You know, if you if you ever read this story, it's much more poignant than any of the 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 the, the screen adaptations, because Dickens goes through pains to point out. Everything Scrooge is doing is legal, and by legal, he means moral. In other words, he's just calling people on their debts and doing solid business. But in doing solid business, he's become a miserly grubber who's not satisfied in anything. He can't even enjoy, he he doesn't even, he goes to his home and he can't even enjoy his bed because he's cold because he's too cheap to put enough coal on it. He never lived with my wife. I live in this house. I had a hundred-gallon propane tank, 700 square- foot house. I didn't use a whole tank the one winter by myself. I married this crazy woman, and I used 73 tanks the next winter. She came in, she turned it up on like something like 65 and like to burnt me out of the house. It's just bad stewardship. Look at what it says. It says "You hoard it, you hoard it, and you hurt yourself. Why? Why? Because. There's, there's no guarantee you're going to keep it. I won't belabor it, but you guys knew, know the story of uh, Jesus telling the parable of the men getting the talents, two men risked and invested, the third man didn't. And Jesus calls him, Jesus calls him a wicked and slothful servant, Matthew 25, 26. He asked this question, you know that I reap where I'm not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. You know, you think that's how I operate? Then you're a knucklehead in essence. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and when I came, received my own what was interest. So take it from him and give it to somebody else who will risk for me. This is incredible. I remember how powerful I found this case and we were going through Matthew. I love this passage because I'm a natural risk taker, and I've been chastised for it so many times. Jesus actually says it's better to risk than to hoard. You'll hurt yourself. It hurts your spirit. Some of us, some of us, I'm that guy. I'm describing me. I'd rather, give, I'd rather give a friend of mine my money than, than to be uh, you know, mischarged out in the public when I'm buying something. I'd rather give it away than buy myself something. I'll agonize over buying a pair of shoes, but we give the exact same sum of money away. So sometimes I rob myself the joy of even the things I need because of a misview of money. I do it. And I see a pitfall here. Why? Because I don't enjoy the money. I don't enjoy the product. I don't enjoy the Lord. (laughs) It's not just Ebenezer's screws. It's Timbo's. It's not just the guy in the parable. It's me. And just because you nail one area doesn't mean you can't let Jesus visit the other area. Like some people are great at tithing, but they're horrible at everything else. Some people are great at everything else, but they're horrible at tithing. Just for an example. It answers in verse 14. It says, look what happens. Those riches, you know, the riches that they were, they were keeping to their own hurt, those riches were lost in a bad venture. In other words, you'll, you'll, you'll never truly be secure. Remember the parable of the, of the farmer. Luke 12, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Fool, it's night your soul is required of you. You'll never truly be secure. My brother's sitting here. He'll remember this vividly. David, you remember the 70s? Mom and daddy worked, 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 worked. They decided to go on that business venture. We all moved to Texas. Remember that? Remember, we, we, moved, we rented a house. Best house we ever had up at that point, wasn't it? On the lake, you could go fishing every day. We had a, what was it, a 1980 Impala. We got back to Halifax County, Virginia. The venture went bust. We went broke. We literally pulled into Grandma and Granddaddy's driveway on Highway 711 in Halifax County, ran out of gas, and I'll never forget. My mama cried because all they had was a handful of change and what was in that car. All that careful planning, the willingness to risk, but just because careful planning and willingness to risk, it's not the one thing that secures the other. You're never really secure. You're never really secure. Also, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you'll leave it behind. Look at verses 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again. He says, this is a grievous evil. Go back to that passage in Luke chapter 12. He says, and whose things will they be? Who's going to get this stuff? Who's going to get it? Let me give you a couple of illustrations real quick. And I'm not going to say this every time. We're, we're talking if they put it in today's dollars, okay? There was this guy named Musa I. He was a king. He was a Muslim king back in the 1200s. When he went on his religious pilgrimage to Mecca, he carried tons of gold. A ton is 2,000 pounds. How would any of you like to have one ton of gold? He carried tons of gold. Now, I looked this up. My, my truck is parked right here. weighs 6,056 pounds. That's three tons. The story seems to indicate he carried multiple of my trucks' weight of gold. Tons of gold. Caesar Augustus. They, no, they can't even measure most of the first wealth, they have no capacity. All the stories told about him says it was unimaginable. People couldn't calculate it. Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus at one time owned. The entirety of Egypt. This is even before he was Caesar. He owned Egypt. Like, where are you going? Going for a weekend at the farm. Now, where's your farm? Egypt. Which part? Yes. You adjusted the value, just that farm, just owning Egypt, the back 40, would have been valued at $4.6 trillion in today's money. Maybe we bring it down to uh, American terms. Nelson Rockefeller, who who by today's monies would have had $400 billion. $400 billion. He was actually very generous. He would travel up and down the East Coast in particular and give money to, he was a Baptist. He gave tons of money to Baptist churches. Tons. Anybody want to guess where Musa First is? Dead? Thank you, Carson. You're exactly right. Anybody want to guess where Caesar Augustus is? Dead. Casey, you're, you're. you're. One and then you got. Let's see. Let's see if Erica knows the next one. You want to guess where Nelson Rockefeller is? She, man, this side. I don't know what y'all are doing. And you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse because you can't take it with you. What do you do if you get all that money and you're not rich toward God? What if you get all that money and you don't enjoy it or God? Isn't that sad? Or you like the guy who says, honey, I love you. I would like one final wish. I would like to take all my wealth with me. Would you just put all my money in the casket? She said, I love you. I'll absolutely fulfill your request. So she wrote a check and slipped it in the casket. Took it all with him. 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Because you brought nothing to the world. We can take nothing, and we can't take anything out of it. Godliness with contentment. Wow, it's powerful. Finally, finally, before we turn to some good news, and we're going to turn to some good news, and I'm going to go really fast in closing. You'll be miserable. How do I know this? Because verse 17 says you'll be a miserable person. One of uh, Shannon's daughter brought a friend uh, in the 4 o'clock service, and, and she left her bulletin here. She took notes. Kylie's little friend took notes. And what was funny is on this one she wrote miserable spaces. Like she, she caught, caught what? what what Solomon has painted a picture of if you pursue money to look for satisfaction you're going to be miserable amen you just are article upon article upon article tells us this I just sampled one the acquisition of wealth makes us want to social distance wants us to distance ourselves from others we don't need other people to survive the way we did when we were poor as we grow wealthier we value independence more and social connectedness less And you don't have to have a lot of money to stare at little boxes like phones and iPads and TVs and see more people, but actually be with many less people. And this, my brothers and sisters, is not good for us. So Solomon paints a picture of somebody who's got a lot, but they're miserable. Often misattributed to Gandhi from a sermon by... Anglican clergyman Frederick Donaldson, we learned this important lesson. The seven social sins are wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanity, worship without sacrifice, politics without principle. In today's application, wealth without work is not good. Commerce without morality is not good. You will be a miserable person. So let me close with some antidotes to to seeking satisfaction in money. I won't read the passages. I'll I'll paraphrase them just for the sake of time. What what has God given you that is really meant to satisfy you? You ready for this? One, meaningful relationships. God gives you meaningful relationships. We are made for community. When you're born, you're born into a family. When you're born again, if you're born again, you're born again into a family. We're made to be together. It's really that simple. We need each other. God wants you to have meaningful relationships and enjoy each other. Multiple times recently, I've had a, a friend of mine tell me they hate to go out in public and eat alone. Last night, I was at Cracker Barrel, and I don't know if you girls or, or care if you noticed it. was a guy right behind y'all in front of me and who was eating alone. And I was thinking about the, what my friend said. I, I actually love it. I, I especially like to go somewhere where no one knows me and just sit and eat a meal where nobody's talking to me. But but maybe, maybe if I had to do that all the time, I wouldn't feel that way, right? Because I get to enjoy a lot of meals with friends and families. One part of my job actually means sometimes I take people I actually enjoy out to lunch and have discussions with them. We're meant to be together. Our homes should be these sanctuaries, where we learn to worship the Lord and enjoy people. And these days, man, it used to be, now this is sort of funny, it used to be you could, I grew up in the drop-in culture. Bill, you'll know exactly, you just go by anybody's house any old time and visit. You remember that? Just go around and visit. Get in the car, after dinner, and go see somebody. We've lost it. We need to get it back. If you look at Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 12, Just read that tonight. Look at it. It's powerful. Two are better than one because they have a reward for their toil. You need people. You need people. You need each other. Secondly, contentment and joy in what God has given you. That's the antidote for seeking satisfaction in money. Enjoy what God has given you. And and if you're not enjoying what God has given you, it is exposing your need for God. Let me illustrate that super quickly. Could you, imagine, could you imagine turning a toddler loose at Disneyland? Could you imagine that? At the best scenario, they'd be playing with an empty cup at the gate. That's what kids do. You buy them an expensive toy, and what do they do? Play with the box, <laughs> right? The best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario something terrible would happen to them. What do they need? They need someone to help them nav- safely navigate the things they're meant to enjoy. So finally, what's the answer? And I gave you some scripture references. Go look them up. Study it. I know I've talked too long, but this is really important. Jesus. Augustine of Hippo said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We need Jesus. Jesus is the one that wants to lead us on how to navigate the world he's given us to be a blessing. We grew up farming, and it... Uh, and it struck me how the, the, the same dirt that would give us vegetables in the spring would break our backs and fall. Same dirt. And some farmers who went through the exact same things we went through seemed to be these people who were at peace, you know. They enjoyed what they had and they just worked. And some people just seemed to fight the dirt. My dad seemed to be one of those people who just fought the dirt and stayed angry all the time. He didn't learn to enjoy what was coming up from it until a couple of years before he was buried up under it. I don't want to be that guy. I want to walk with Jesus and learn to navigate the good things he's given us. And my contention, biblically speaking, is that until 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 Jesus shows us how to enjoy it, we won't know how to enjoy it on our own. Until Jesus shows us how to enjoy each other, we won't know how to enjoy each other on our own. We need Jesus. Two closing questions. Do you know him? If you don't. The cool thing is he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All you who are weary of trying to do it on your own, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll start to show you how to navigate life. Also, if you already know him, are you letting him lead? Are you letting him lead? Growing up, you know, parenting with care, she was always that one that, you know, if the child was looking like they might fall one day, let's follow them around until that day and prevent the falling. I'm like, let it happen, All right? And so we, we always balance each other as parents, you know? Seems like she kept him from falling, and sometimes I pushed him to falling. But we had the same goal. Show him how to walk and live. Well, you know, Jesus takes you as an individual, and he teaches you how to live and enjoy things. But you've got to really walk with him. Sometimes that means he lands you on your face, Sometimes it means he picks you up when you've landed yourself on your face. Are you walking with Jesus? Father, thank you for a chance to share from your word. Help us, God, to engage with this scripture in a fresh and powerful way where we see that you have given us many good gifts. And help us, God, not to fail in enjoying them. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.